All right, take your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 11. Uh, We're going to tonight return to the book of Exodus where Israel is just getting ready to experience their departure from Egypt. And last week we dealt with the theme of the Exodus itself. This week we're going to deal with that really important uh, event right before they leave, right after or during, we should say, the, the final plague where Israel, for the first time in their history, celebrates the Passover. Now, I want to pause before we get to the Scripture in chapter 11 and just mention or, or sort of uh, touch on a subject that I think is troubling to a lot of people, especially when we get to passages like this. And that's the subject of the wrath of God. And particularly in this passage, you know, it's easy for us, I think, sometimes to see the victory that Israel experiences and miss that there's something really horrible happening in Egypt. And God's wrath is on full display here. This is one of the most awful moments in human history happening in Egypt during the Passover. And some people really struggle with the idea that God could or would do things like this. But we see it all through the Old Testament, the wrath of God sort of on display as we walk through the Old Testament. We're going to see other examples of it as well. But I think that we can help ourselves to understand it a little bit better if we understand God's wrath in the context of of two other words. Justice and grace. Justice and grace. And we can understand God's wrath a little bit better when we deal with this word first, justice, and we realize that God's wrath is on display in the Bible, in the scriptures, not because God is a vengeful, mean, you know, like that Zeus kind of Greek character who's sitting up there ready to just rain down lightning and and judgment at any moment. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not... His wrath isn't displayed because he's just mad or because he's just sick of people or what they've done. But God's wrath is displayed because God is just. He's a just God. And we remember that this is one of the attributes of God, his justice. And God is a perfect judge. And God always pursues perfect justice. And maybe the better way to understand that is to understand the idea of an unjust judge. And you probably all heard illustrations like this, but just think of if somebody broke into your home and did the most awful thing imaginable, and they took the person that you loved the most, they kidnapped that person, held them captive, tortured them, and eventually murdered them. And then that person who perpetrated that crime was, was caught without a shadow of a doubt. This person was guilty. He was uh, charged with the with the crime, he went before the court, he was convicted, and then the judge said, well, you know, this is his first offense, and so a hundred dollar fine will do just fine, and you can go. Now, what would happen in your heart in that moment, other than you would probably want to take justice into your own hands, but what would you be screaming in your spirit in that moment? That's not right, right? This is not just. This is not justice. 
We want justice. We want God to be a just God. And when we think about God, well, we have to understand that, that His justice demands that He always judges sin. He always judges sinful people. And we see that throughout the Scriptures, an expression of His perfect justice. And, and we can never say that when somebody receives the wrath of God, that it was unfair. We can never say that. We can never say that. Anybody who becomes a recipient of the wrath of God did not become a recipient of an unjust sentence. We all deserve the wrath of God. Every human being deserves the wrath of God. And so we can understand that God, in a sense, is just following through on who He is. His justice demands His wrath. But then there's also, thank goodness, thank God, there's also grace. And we see both of these things on display in the passage that we're going to deal with tonight, where God makes a way to satisfy His own wrath. Where it's not that He just glosses over things or doesn't deal with things. He always does, but but God makes a way to give unmerited favor to his enemies. He makes a way for his wrath to be satisfied beyond direct wrath at the person who deserves it. And we see that in the Passover, and thank goodness we see that in our own lives, manifesting itself in our relationship with Christ. And and think of it this way. As you walk through the Old Testament, and tonight as we deal with this passage, understand that if God only ever exhibited Grace for one single human being, that would be enough. That would be enough. Because we all deserve wrath. God's grace is a gift that none of us truly deserve. So think of that. I just want to touch on that as we begin because we're going to get into some weighty things in the weeks and months ahead, really, as we see some places where God does some things and His wrath is poured out. And it's uncomfortable, really, to deal with or to talk about. We see here that the Israel is being saved on this end of the spectrum. We see Egypt over here and Israel over here. But Israel is saved at, pass, at the Passover by the grace of God. And Israel still celebrates this Passover. Even to this day, it's a celebration of the redemption of God's people from the judgment and wrath of God. Now think about that. This Passover is, is important. The theme of the Passover is important for us to understand that all throughout redemptive history, leading up to and culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ, salvation is from the wrath of God, and it's also by the grace of God. Now think about that. If you're a note taker, that's a good thing to write down that Salvation is from God. I mean, what are you saved from when you're saved? We use that word, saved. I got saved, or somebody got saved. What are you really saying? What are you saved from? A lot of times we say we're saved from our sins, but that's not really true. Our sins are part of the equation, but what are we really saved from? The wrath of God. And who saves us from the wrath of God? God does. So salvation is always from God, in the sense that we're saved from His wrath, and it's always delivered to us by God. He 
doesn't. We talked about that even on Sunday. But let's look at the Passover and see what we can learn from this event that really has become the centerpiece of the life of Israel and their understanding of who they are and what God has done. So just go to chapter 11, and, uh, and we're going to start in verse 1, and then we're, gonna, we're not going to read all of it, because I do want to try to get done with enough time for you all to ask questions if you want. But in chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you out completely. Now, just stop right there because even there, there's two things that we we really need to understand from that statement. And one is that that God knew exactly when his people would be let go. Did you catch that? As he announces the last plague. And don't miss this. We're so familiar with the story that we might begin to assume that they knew That once number 10 got here, this thing was going to end. But that's not really what was going on. This is really the first time where God says, this is the one. And after this one, you're going. After this one, this thing's going to go. Pharaoh is going to drive you out after this thing. So here I think we can learn and remember, even just from that one statement, that God has a plan. Remember, we've been talking about that all throughout this study, even beginning with the very first verse of the Bible, that God has a plan and God is working his plan for his creation. And even in the Exodus and in this circumstance where Israel needs to be released from Egypt, we see here in that verse where God says, this is the one and then you're leaving, that God knew. God had a plan. God was working his plan. And then he says, yet one more plague. And this is important as well. Up to this point, there had already been nine plagues. Nine plagues. Now, let's ask a question that really doesn't matter, I guess, but just for the sake of understanding this. I mean, was it necessary for there to be ten plagues for God's people to be released from Egypt? Was that necessary? I mean, just think of it. Like, could... Could God have simply sent Moses to Pharaoh and the first time that Moses stood before Pharaoh, could God have softened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh released the people of Israel without any plagues? Could that have happened? It could have happened. Or how about this? Could Israel have woke up one day and every Egyptian been dead? And they just suddenly were free. And they could have walked out of Egypt. Could that have happened without the plagues? Could God have simply just released his people from, from captivity? He could have. But again, remember that God always does things with a purpose. There's always a purpose. And remember that the people of Israel had been in Egypt for four centuries to this point. Four centuries. And they've been enslaved by a nation that has a complex set and and system of religion, a complex structure of deities and gods, and here's a God, and there's a God, and there's a God here, and there's a God there, and there's a God of the sun, and a God of the water, and a God of the wind, and a God of the river, and there's gods everywhere, and they've been influenced by this. And Vodi Bachman says this, he says, God delivered his people not just physically, but also theologically. 
They needed to be delivered from the oppression of the Egyptian theological system. They needed to be delivered from their belief that these gods in Egypt were anything other than idols. God not only worked to take his people out of Egypt, but he was working to get Egypt out of his people. And so there's a sense in which through all of this, once again, God's operating with a plan and a purpose. And one of the things that he's absolutely, most certainly doing is he's deconstructing the idea that these Egyptian gods are real or have some power over us. And in the end, his people would understand that there's only one God and there's only one God in all of creation. That's why we get to the beginning of the book of Genesis written by Moses coming up out of Egypt. And it begins how? In the beginning, God. There's only one. All these other gods you left behind in Egypt were no gods at all. And so God's displaying through all of these plagues when he says yet one more plague. He, he could have done it any number of ways, but he did it this way because he was deconstructing that whole system. Now skip down to chapter 12. Where here God begins to give us specific instructions for the Passover. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months, and shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to that which, can, which you can eat, and shall make your, uh, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, and when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And and he goes on to give even more specific instructions. And here's another important lesson. When when we read our Bibles, we really have to ask ourselves, what 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 do these things mean? And why is God doing this? And I think that we see here, if we just think critically about what's going on here, I mean, God's giving them instructions, and He's giving them very specific instructions. And we'll see this all through the giving of the law and the institution of the law. God gives them very specific instructions about the things they're going to do. And here, Remember that this is a circumstance where God is going to save Israel from his own wrath. And he tells them that the way to do it is to follow this specific plan of salvation. And don't miss this. Israel had no other way to be saved from God's wrath except to do it God's way. You get that? And why that's so important for us? This is hugely important for us. Especially because we live in a time and in a setting and in a culture where we're led to believe that, that all ways are equally valid. Right? 
Like we're even in this new, new thing now where it's not just that we don't want to challenge each other's ways. Now in our, in our own culture, in our own way of thinking now, we're encouraged to think this way. That David, what's true for you is true for you and that's true. But what's true for me is true for me and that's also true. And what's true for you, Don, is true for you and that can also be true. I mean, you just have all these truths, and it doesn't really matter if they conflict with each other. They can all be true, and after all, we're just all on different paths leading to the same ocean or on different paths leading to the same peak or however you want to say it. We're all on different paths, and we'll eventually get to the same place, and we'll eventually reach God in our own ways and all of this stuff. But the Bible's really clear, isn't it? Like when God lays out His plan for salvation here in Exodus chapter 12 and then throughout all of Scripture culminating in Christ, it's either His way or no way. That's why when we get to John 14, 6, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus says very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. There's one way. It's God's way. This is really important. So, Now skip down a little bit further and down to verse 21, chapter 12, verse 21. And here we have sort of a summary, a summary of God's plan for Israel's salvation in the Passover. It says in verse 21, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. And take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. And there are three... Really specific instructions in these verses. And we're going to get through these quickly and then you can ask questions or make comments. But let's look at these three really specific instructions. And it shouldn't be difficult. And I don't mean this to be funny or, or to catch you or trick you or anything like that. But it just shouldn't be difficult, I think, for us to look at these instructions and see very clearly that they're pointing to something bigger. Very clearly. This is the first instruction in this summary. Is to kill the lamb. That's the first instruction that they get. Go take for yourselves, in verse 21, according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. There's no salvation for Israel on this night unless the lamb is killed. I mean, that's the very first thing. And just notice, again, that God doesn't give them another way. He doesn't give them another option. He doesn't say, just go into your house and hang tight and pray really hard. Have a really intense worship service in your home. You know, don't just go in there and search for me. And as long as you love me and your heart's searching for me, then I'll... Pass over you. That's not what he says at all, is it? There's no salvation unless the first thing that happens is that the lamb dies. 
And the lamb becomes a substitute for the people. And without the death of the lamb, there's no salvation. And we should, I think, hopefully, be able to arrive pretty quickly at a New Testament parallel. I would hope. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says explicitly that Christ is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. So the lamb has to die first. There has to be an atoning sacrifice. And then the second instruction that Moses gives them is to apply the blood. Right? Kill the lamb and then do what? Take some of its blood and put it on the doorpost on the lintel of your home. That's the second instruction. So the people are instructed to do this, to, to apply the blood of the lamb. And don't, don't miss this either. That I think that there's something to be said for the fact that it had to be done at every single home. It had to be applied by the head of the household for the sake of every individual in the household. It wasn't enough for Moses to sacrifice one lamb and then apply its blood to some altar in Israel and that be enough. That wasn't enough. Every single person who was going to be saved had to be in a home where the blood was applied. And we would say, I think we could take that a step further and we could just say that the New Testament Parallel to that is that every person who's going to benefit from the death of the Lamb has to apply the blood of the Lamb in their life. Like It doesn't just happen that it's good enough for Don, and that's good enough. After all, he's the deacon here, he's one of our deacons, so if it's good enough for Don, then we're all good. It has to be applied to us individually. The lamb has been sacrificed. The lamb has already died. I mean, what if a person in Israel, just think of it this way. Think of it this way as we're drawing the parallel. What if they had chosen the lamb, the lamb was without blemish, they'd followed all those instructions, they'd killed the lamb on the correct time, but they didn't apply the blood. What happens? Then they die. There has to be a follow-through on this thing, the application of the blood. So in order for there to be salvation, the lamb has to die, the blood has to be applied. And then don't miss this. This one's really important. It's easy to miss. But in those instructions, let's read it together. I want to see if you pick up on this. Verse 21. Let's see. Yeah, read verse 22. Listen to it again. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of the house until the morning. So what's the third instruction that he gives them? First, kill the lamb. Second, apply the blood. What's the third thing? Stay inside. That's perfect. That's exactly how I had it written in my notes. Stay inside. And this is really important for us to, to dig a little deeper on that one because it seems like the first two are so much more easy for us to apply, but what about this, just stay in the house? I mean, where's the, where's the application of that? And I think that there's 
huge application for us here. Like, for instance, there's really only two reasons you would have left the house. There's really only two reasons that night. If you were in Israel, there's only two reasons you would leave. Reason number one is because you were afraid of what was coming. You believed what was coming. You were terrified of what was coming. And so you decided, I'm getting out of here. I don't even want to be here for this. I'm going to get out of here and get as far away from here as I can possibly get before this thing happens because I'm not real sure about this blood on the doorpost thing and this lamb thing. I'm just getting out of here. And I think the parallel there is a person who believes a whole lot of what the Scriptures tell us about who we are and who God is, but they've just decided that rather than doing it God's way, I'm going to find a way to do it myself. And the parallel would be, I think, I think, and you can ask questions or challenge this or make a comment in a minute, I think the parallel would be those people who think that we can somehow do it ourselves. That we can escape the wrath of God ourselves. So when he says stay inside, I think he's saying You've got to, this is God's way, you've got to do it God's way. And the other thing I think that would be true here, the other reason you would leave the house, one is because you're scared and you want to get away. I think the other reason you'd leave the house is because you just don't believe that it's going to happen. Right? Does that make sense to you? I mean, I know this isn't explicit here, but I think that we can easily imply these things, that we say, if somebody left the house that night, either they were running scared or they just didn't believe what God had said. And so, in that sense, I mean... You either believed God and you stayed in the house and lived, or you didn't believe God and you left the house and you would die. And there's a definite parallel there to how we're told to understand and accept and deal with the message of the gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm almost done, almost done. I promise I'm 30 seconds from being done. And it's this, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and do what? And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have to believe. John 3.16, whosoever believes shall not perish. The Passover, this monumental event where God rescues Israel from his own wrath against Egypt demonstrating His grace and justice all at the same time. The people saved from God's wrath by God. And ultimately, all of it, all of it in the end, ultimately is pointing us forward to Christ. And we can understand more fully when we start to understand the the things that are going on in the Old Testament. We understand a lot better when this wild man named John the Baptist is standing knee-deep in the River Jordan. And he looks up. And there's Jesus, and he says out loud for all the religious Jews around him, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover, every single year, was pointing us forward to Jesus, pointing forward to Jesus.